in, um, in high school, the late 80s, early 90s, um, I was really into contemporary Christian music. There was no internet back then, um, nor did we, growing up in New Hampshire, we, we didn't have any kind of Christian radio. And so we learned about music either from friends or by visiting a local Bible bookstore, picking up a copy of CCM magazine. But back then, most of the Bible bookstores also had in the, in the back corner a tape deck, headphones, and a rack of the latest musical releases marked Demo. You could go into the store and listen to tapes before you bought them. Now, the Bible bookstore in Concord, New Hampshire, which was closest to our house and to my high school, was run by a Baptist family, so their music was pretty tame. The best music was at a store down in Bedford, New Hampshire, that I'm convinced was run by Pentecostals. Well, somewhere along the way, I stumbled across um, the music of Keith Green. By the time I was introduced to him, he'd been killed in a plane crash several years earlier. But I was fascinated right away. I loved the, the intense, heavy-handed, yet simple piano playing. I loved the wordy lyrics. I loved that it was so early 80s, yet he sounded nothing like the the synth pop of the world. My parents often didn't like the music I listened to, but they really had nothing to criticize in Keith Green. In fact, his wife Melody wrote the song, There is a Redeemer, that we sometimes sing. and It's actually in over 20 different hymnals, but he was the first to record it back in 1982 on his last album before he was killed in that plane crash. But in my opinion, with the with the possible exception of his song about the prodigal son, the song that best captures Keith's artistry and musical abilities is his song, The Sheep and the Goats. In this song, Keith sings through Jesus' parable in Matthew chapter 25, where Jesus describes the final judgment of the world as a shepherd separating the, the righteous sheep from the unrighteous goats. And if you're familiar with that passage in Matthew, the way the shepherd distinguishes between the sheep and the goats is by examining the, we could put it this way, the sacrificial love that they have shown toward, as he says in, in Matthew 25, 40, he says this, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. In this song, Keith Green, he stays remarkably close to the text of Scripture. He pretty much just goes through the parable. However, it's the, in, the, in the song's last line, he gives this final commentary on the passage, and he dramatically sings this. He says, And my friends, the only difference between the sheep and the goats, according to this Scripture, is what they did and didn't do. Now, although I like Keith Green's music generally, and, 
And the sheep and the goats song in particular is a real, it's a real banger, as the kids say. I think the song's last line is wrong and can even be dangerous. Jesus could not have been clearer. The way we love others, especially the least of these, matters. And yet the only difference between the righteous sheep and the unrighteous goats is not what they did or didn't do. In fact, the difference is not merely in outward actions. It's not merely in in the good works. Sheep and goats have different DNA. The difference is, is cellular. They're a different species. And so the real difference between the sheep and the goats is the heart condition inside of them. Have they been made new? Have they been made alive together with Christ? Or, or to use the words of another old song, one that's older, have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you fully trusting in His grace this hour? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you washed in the blood, in the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb? Are your garments spotless? Are they white as snow? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Turn to Leviticus chapter 5, if you're not already there. Today we're um, looking at the third of three sermons um, specifically regarding what the Scripture here calls the sin offering. This is that offering that is brought to purify repentant sinners. This, of course, is part of our larger study of this book, this entire book, which is made up mostly of the law of God. Before I read this, though, I want you to remember this statement. Keep this in your mind as we read through this. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. So Leviticus 5, I'm going to read verses 1 to 13. Leviticus 5, verse 1. If anyone sins and that he hears a public adjuration to testify, and though he is a witness, whether he has seen or come to know the matter, yet does not speak, he shall bear his iniquity. Or if he touches any unclean thing, whether a carcass of an unclean wild animal or a carcass of unclean livestock or a carcass of unclean swarming things and it is hidden from him and he has become unclean and he realizes his guilt or if he touches human uncleanness of whatever sort the uncleanness may be with which he has become, one becomes unclean and it is hidden from him and he comes to know it and he realizes his guilt or If anyone utters with his lips a rash oath to do evil or to do good, any sort of rash oath the people swear, and it is hidden from him, and when he comes to know it and he realizes his guilt in any of these, when he realizes his guilt in any of these and confesses the sin he has committed, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation for the sin that he has committed a female from the flock, a lamb or a goat, for a sin offering." And the priest shall make atonement for him for his sin. But if he cannot afford a lamb, then he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation for the sin that he has uh, committed two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. He shall bring them to the priest who shall offer, the first, offer first the one for the sin offering 
He shall wring its head from its neck, and, but shall not sever it completely. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood of the sin offering on the side of the altar, while the rest of the blood shall be drained out at the base of the altar. It is a sin offering. Then he shall offer the second for a burnt offering according to the rule. And the priest shall make atonement for him, for the sin that he has committed, and he shall be forgiven. But if he cannot afford two turtle doves or two pigeons, then he shall bring as his offering for the sin that he has committed a tenth of an ephah of fine flour for a sin offering. He shall put no oil on it and shall put no frankincense on it, for it is a sin offering, and he shall bring it to the priest. And the priest shall take a handful of it as its memorial portion, uh, portion and burn this on the altar, uh, on the Lord's food offerings. It is a sin offering. Thus the priest shall make atonement for him for the sin which he has committed in any one of these things, and he shall be forgiven. And the remainder shall be for the priest as in the grain offering. So let's stop and ask for God's help. Lord, we do pray that you would uh, give us what we need today. As we open your word, Lord, I pray that you would show us the wonderful things that you have done. Remind us of your grace and your mercy. Show us Jesus, Lord. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Now, I mentioned this last week, but according to the New Testament, Specifically in the writings of the Apostle Paul to the Galatians. For example, in Galatians 3.24, we read, So then the law was our schoolmaster, the King James uses, until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Romans chapter 3, verse 20, he says something similar. He says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law, the law was our schoolmaster. The law of God was given in part to reveal sin, but it was also given to reveal God's gracious provision of a substitute who would bring atonement and cleansing, purification from sin. So what we see in this passage here is that this this lays out, this does this by laying out the case that inevitably, inevitably there are things left undone. Things left undone. There's certain things in our lives that might seem trivial, yet nevertheless are still sin. And therefore, they bring stain, unrighteousness, and so we must be made pure. As we continue to look, um, as we continue looking at this specific sacrificial offering, one thing that might seem minor, might seem inconsequential even, yet I think it is worth stopping and noticing, is the chapter division between chapters 4 and 5. Now, chapter divisions in Scripture are an interesting thing, an interesting subject. Um, they're not inspired, necessarily. They were added later. Uh, there are things like in the Psalms, there are collections of specific Psalms, but the chapter divisions in most of the book or um, most of the Bible are not inspired. They were added much later. Yet they're pretty much universally accepted the way that we have them in our Bibles, Although there's a few places where there's some disagreement. 
But generally speaking, most Christians understand the importance, especially when they're trying to find something or trying to look something up. Imagine having no verse numbers or chapter divisions in the book of Isaiah, right? Or Matthew or any, many of the books. But they can also be helpful, um, I think, because sometimes they, sometimes they provide a bit of, uh, we could say, passive commentary. Here's what I mean. Chapter 5, verses 1 to 13, is clearly continued instruction concerning the sin offering that began back in chapter 4, verse 1. So all of chapter 4, all the way down through chapter 5, verse 13, is about the same offering, what the Scriptures call the sin offering. But clearly, this section here, beginning in verse 1, is actually a new section. Um, the reader is supposed to pause a beat between these two chapters. And we know that there is some sort of break here because the very first word in the chapter is if. And so if your Bible is formatted in such a way as to see the paragraphs, Bibles aren't always laid out that way, but if you can see the paragraph divisions when you look at the, at the word there, you can look up and you can see that several of the paragraphs of chapter 4 also begin with that same word, if. The ESV translates it as if. So remember, chapter 4 is arranged, we might say, um, by, by a social or, or kind of a community status of the people. So there's the high priest, there's a paragraph about him. There's the entire congregation and a paragraph about the, the whole people of Israel. There are the, tri, the, the leaders of the tribes or the clans, etc. There's a paragraph about that. And then finally, there's instruction for the, for the common Israelite person. And when you continue reading into chapter 5, you might be tempted to tie these instructions back just simply to the, to the law regarding the common Israelite. Without this chapter division, or at least a paragraph division here, it would appear that these are only simply further instructions for the common people, for the normal people, even with alternative offerings for those who are the poor, or even the poorest of the poor. And while it is certainly true that the people needed to follow this law, the law also applies to the rest of the groups as well. The leaders, the high priest, for example, is not exempt from this law. And so I think that this chapter division here is helpful because it causes us to slow down a beat and remember that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And our sin, whether we are a priest, a prince, or a pauper, our sin has stained us thoroughly, and we need to be washed clean. And so for the people of Israel, even, even though they, they may have brought sin offerings for those unintentional sins that we've looked at for the past couple of weeks in chapter 4, there are still left things undone. And as a result, Chapter 5 includes sin, sins that have been committed um, consciously and then forgotten about, but then later remembered or brought to the attention of the person, as well as you can see specific types of, uh, we're putting it into that same category of unintentional sin, sins that are um, 
willing to be repented of when they're brought to our attention, to their attention. Now, before we get into this, I also want to point out four differences between um, chapters 4 and this section of chapter 5, and I think this will be helpful um, as, as we attempt to get our minds around such a, such a difficult-to-understand book. Um, so, f- first thing is this. In chapter 5, the sins that are mentioned that I read, especially from the first four verses, those sins bring guilt and they require confession. Guilt and confession. I don't know if you noticed that when I read through this. Neither of those terms are used in chapter 4. We should make note of that. Guilt and confession. Second, the sins mentioned in chapter 4 are vague and general. And so we read statements that that sound like this. If anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commandments about things not to be done and does any one of them, just those are vague, right? Those, Those are general sins. It breaks any of the Lord's commands. Compare that to chapter 5 that we just read where the sins that are listed are both very specific. And they clearly affect other people in one way or another. Now, now third, whereas chapter 4 is is broken into categories of people, the high priest, the congregation, the leaders, and the common people, um, there's no distinction in the status of the sinners in chapter 5. In fact, over and over and over again, it just says, Anyone, if anyone sins. And, and then finally, I want you to notice this especially. Look down at verse 13 of chapter 5. Thus the priest shall make atonement for him for the sin which he has committed in any one of these things, and he shall be forgiven. In any one of these things. That summary there any one of these things it can refer it really can only refer to the specific sins listed at the beginning of chapter 5 and not those sins of chapter 4 which are so vague and general right this is about this is a new section so this section of the of this law begins by identifying here three specific sins that require the offender to bring the sin offering Then it goes on to describe three different offerings that may be brought as a way to bring purification for the sinner. So those three different offerings are listed from the the most to the least expensive. From flock animals, lambs or, or goats, to birds, to an offering of flour for the poorest of the poor people. So here's the main point in all of this for the Israelites. Okay? This is how the law applied to the people of God under the Old Covenant, under the Old Testament, to the people of Israel. If a person touched anything unclean or was irresponsible in speech or conduct, that person, even though unaware of the offense, was guilty. After being made aware of the offense and the guilt, that person was then required to confess the sin and bring a purification offering so that atonement 
could be made. That's sort of the big idea of all of this for the people of Israel. That's the point of chapter 5, verses 1 to 13, for the people of Israel. Let me give you just two sentences about what the, what the New Covenant, the, uh, the, the New Testament says about this for those who belong to Christ. Then we're going to go back to the old for a little bit before circling back to the new. Just two sentences about this from the New Testament. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Keep that passage in your minds as we work through this. We're going to come back to it. But before we look at the gospel, before we look at the good news, we need to look at the law. We need to start here with, this is what we see here, is God's high standard of holiness. God's high standard of holiness. Now, as I said, there are there are three very specific sins here. There's a bunch of subcategories, but there's three very specific sins here. The first is anyone defying a charge to testify. The second is touching of any unclean thing. And the third is carelessly making an oath. Even, even if the person has no awareness of any wrongdoing at the time, even if the person has completely forgotten about it, Nevertheless, these things bring defilement, and the sinner must be purified. So let's talk about these three specific sins. Look at verse 1. If a person sins, and that he hears a public adjuration to testify, and though he is a witness, whether he has seen or come to know about the, uh, about the matter, yet does not speak, he shall bear his iniquity. Failing to give testimony is the idea here. The idea of withholding evidence. Now, under our system, uh, in modern days, we might think of this as someone who is sworn in, someone who is under oath, yet refuses to testify. They could be held in contempt of court, right? This could be the person who doesn't want to get involved for whatever reason. Um, maybe they fear for their own safety. Maybe they just simply don't care enough to be bothered. Or it could be that their testimony might be used to incriminate them. Regardless, under the Old Testament law, the Old Covenant law, that was sin. In fact, there's a, there's a proverb that states this explicitly. It's Proverbs uh, 29, verse 24, which says, The partner of a thief hates his own life. He hears the curse, the oath, but discloses nothing. He's not testifying against his partner. Amongst the Israelite people, this person was either, either an eyewitness or had otherwise gained information that, that compelled him to step forward and testify. The implication here in, in this law is that some kind of time has passed since the crime or, or since the charges were brought and the witness has not come forward even though they are under oath, even though they were compelled. Now, <clears throat> I don't know about you, but this seems like a really random and specific law. 
How much time are we going to spend in a sermon about a law like this? Right? But Jesus found himself in this exact situation in the Gospel of Matthew. But before we go there, I want you to remember the prophecy of the Messiah from Isaiah 53. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Now, turn to Matthew 26, verse 57, and listen to the situation that Jesus found himself in. Found himself is probably not the best way to put it. The situation that we see here. Matthew 26, verse 57. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. Just stop there. He opened not his mouth. Prophecy fulfilled. Keep reading. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have now heard his testimony. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. And they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? So Jesus fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah like a, like a sheep that before its shearers was silent. He opened not his mouth, yet he also, because Christ was compelled by oath there to obey the law, he did. He obeyed the law. He kept the law perfectly. This random, obscure law in the depths of the book of Leviticus. Let's face it, if you're reading through the Bible in a year, well, Congratulations if you're still working on that, because it's Leviticus time probably, and it's tough. These are tough things to read. How in the world does this apply to us? Right there. Jesus kept the law perfectly. This random, obscure law in the depths of the book of Leviticus, Jesus fulfilled in Matthew chapter 26. And it was his obedience to the law, even to this law specifically, it was his obedience to that law right there that condemned him to death. 
In fact, the next actions recorded against him in in Matthew's gospel are found down in chapter 27, verses 1 and 2. So the scene cuts from the, the, the trial inside where they sentence him, right? He deserves death. The scene cuts to Peter outside, sitting with the guards. Then in chapter 27, it cuts back to inside. And when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. And so we see that this, this really isn't just any obscure old law. But rather, this proves to us once again that all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable. Jesus obeyed this perfectly. Well, the second sin here in Leviticus chapter 5 is seen in verses 2 and 3. If anyone touches an unclean thing, whether a carcass of an unclean wild animal, the carcass of an unclean livestock, or the carcass of unclean swarming things, and It is hidden from him and he has become unclean and he realizes his guilt or if he touches human uncleanness of whatever sort the uncleanness may be with which uh, one becomes unclean and it is hidden from, from him. When he comes to know it and realizes his guilt, so becoming unclean here. This is where we catch a glimpse of the purification that the people needed from those things that might not necessarily be sin. Yet we can clearly see, even in this, these couple of verses, we can see the connection with uncleannesses and, and death, especially with the animals there in verse 2, but also for those human uncleannesses in verse 3. As I said, um, I've said before as we've worked through this, those things are going to be explained, those human uncleannesses, in chapters 12 to 15, so we'll get there eventually. But the issue here is that the person either forgot... Or, or otherwise neglected to go through the, the ritual purification process. And it was the failure to go through that process that brought the guilt, not the actual uncleanness itself. It was the failure to go through the process of being made clean. So in an agrarian society, honestly, not that far from some of us, in an, some of you, in an agrarian society, um, it was inevitable that a significant portion of the population would, with some frequency, come into contact with a dead animal, right? In the farm life, it's just a part of life. When you raise animals, it's a part of life, and you have to deal with death sometimes. It's part of life on the farm. And it's the same, really, with sickness and disease, particularly in an era of history that doesn't have sterile hospitals like we have now, and they would have to care for one another in their own homes. When they did, they would become ritually unclean. And so they would need to be purified before the Lord. And failure to do that was sinful and brought guilt because that stain would then spread to the tabernacle when they would come to worship. They needed to be made clean before they could approach a holy, holy, holy God. Remember that that death and disease exist because of sin. It's the result of sin being in the world. It's a part of the curse. 
And so God's people must be made pure before they can come to worship. And then the, and then the third sin is seen there in verse 4. Verse 4 says, Or if anyone utters with his lips a rash oath to do evil or to do good, any sort of rash oath that people swear, and it is hidden from him when he comes to know it and he realizes his guilt in any of these, we'll stop there, rash oaths. This is the person who didn't fulfill his promise. Maybe he forgot. Maybe it was unpleasant. He didn't want to do it, and so he avoided following through with the promise. This is... This really is um, the I swear to God type of oaths, but they're not just the, the flippant I swear to God that we sometimes say. These are the ones that like hold me to this. But even more than just sort of that, that, uh, those oaths that people make, this is like Jephthah's rash vow from Judges chapter 11. Jephthah promised in that chapter, he says, Uh, to God. He's in battle, and he says to God, if you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. He makes this vow to the Lord, and we're not going to turn there and read the whole story, but you you may remember that it's it's an awful story. It's an awful story where his little girl is the first one out the door to greet dad as he returns from battle. And he had made this rash oath. The moral here, as we look at the law, is that God's name isn't to be taken or invoked in vain because God's name means something. It's because God himself keeps his promises. His people are also required to keep the promises made in his name. Jephthah's oath should never have been made, and it cost his daughter her life. These are serious matters, and they bring serious consequences. Let me give you another example that's maybe a little more positive. It's from Genesis chapter 31, and it's... It's a, it's a covenant treaty made between Laban and Jacob as they were about to go their separate ways, father-in-law and son-in-law. They're about to separate and go their separate ways. And Laban said to Jacob, See this heap and the pillar which I have set between you and me? This heap is a witness, and the pillar is a witness that I will not pass over this heap to you, like a heap of stones. That I will not pass over this heap to you, and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. The God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac, and Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and spent the night on the hill country. They ate bread um, confirming the covenant agreement between the two. But did you catch the oath in that? Catch the oath in that covenant agreement. He said, the God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. As God is my witness, he essentially says, I'll stay on my side, you stay on your side. And so when they failed to keep those promises, when they failed to keep that, that treaty, that agreement between them, when they realized their guilt, the Israelite was to confess his sin 
and make a sin offering, make a purification offering. That's what's happening here. And all of this illustrates God's standard of holiness. Sin infects every cell of our bodies. It infects our minds. It infects our day-to-day lives. We don't even know it. We're not even aware of the times that we fail to keep our word. We forget. We make flippant promises to people and we forget. We sin all the time. We are unrighteous and need to be made pure. And to do this, confession is required. Confession is required. Look at verses 5 and 6 here. When he realizes his guilt in any of these and confesses the sin he has committed. He shall bring to the Lord as his compensation for the sin that he has committed a female from the flock, a lamb or a goat for his sin offering. And the priest shall make an atonement for him for his sin. Now this is where, for the first time here, the requirement of confession is introduced. Now when we think of confession, um, we either think of going to a priest, some sort of little booth like the Roman Catholics. I've never been, but I've seen it in the movies before with a little window that slides. I don't know why they have that. Or we think of ordering our kids to say you're sorry. Neither of those are good things. Christ forgives sins, not a priest. And it is dangerous to force our kids to say something they don't believe or they don't feel. No parent can force his children to feel sorrow for their sin. You may be able to manipulate their emotions. Some of us can get pretty good at that. You may be able to make them sorry that they got caught, sorry they face your wrath, but sorrow is not in view when the Bible speaks here of confession. See, what we really want is not for our kids to say, I'm sorry, whether they really are or not, No, what we really want is for them to acknowledge their sin and seek forgiveness. And that's not just for the kids. That's for us. All of us. That's what's happening here. To confess means to acknowledge. And so to confess sin is to acknowledge that what was either done or not done was in fact sinful. It is to agree with God's assessment of the sin. So we could put it like this. To confess is to acknowledge the truth. So to put a a positive spin on it, to look at this in in a positive light, we can see this in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. To confess the truth. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Do you see what Paul is doing there? An acknowledgement of the truth. An acknowledgement of the truth that Christ died to save sinners. That God raised Him from the dead. That acknowledgement, that acknowledgement combined with belief, combined with faith, brings justification, brings salvation. To confess is to acknowledge the truth. 
So let's circle back to 1 John 1, 8 and 9. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, if we acknowledge the truth that we have sinned against a holy, holy, holy God, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This, this here in Leviticus 5, this is what the Apostle John is talking about there in 1 John 1, 8 and 9. It, I, I think it's so unfortunate that, that Christians don't really know anything about the book of Leviticus. I get it. I understand. I'm, I'm learning right now as we're going through this. But it is unfortunate that we don't really understand the law of God because the law was given God's law was given to point out the sin that infects every fiber of our being. We are sinners who have been stained and contaminated to the core, and we need the cleansing that can only come by the grace of God. Would you be free from the burden of sin? There's power in the blood. Power in the blood. Would you or evil a victory win? There's wonder-working power in the blood. There's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This, here in Leviticus, this is what John is talking about here. Notice, notice that when John says this, when he says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Us, we, God's people, we sin. It is our sin that stains and corrupts us, but there is good news. The Lord has provided a way for us to be cleansed. A couple of verses later, John says this. Remember, he's, he's the old grandfather who has lived life and it's not been easy these last few years. He was exiled. He was tortured. And yet he loves the church. And he says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. He is the sacrifice that takes away all of that sin. All of those sacrifices, all of the ones that we've read about so far in Leviticus. The, 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 the goat, the sheep, the turtle dove, the pigeon with its neck wrung but not completely severed. All of those offerings, He is the propitiation for our sins. 
and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Anyone who confesses that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, because God is gracious towards sinners. God is gracious towards sinners. Really, we could see this, especially in these, the last half of this, verses 7 to 13. I'm not going to read all of these now. But the ritual follows the procedure for the purification or for the sin offering that we already looked at in chapter 4. I'm not going to go through all of that again. But I do want to point out that this law here adds some alternative offerings for the poor. So just like in any society, um, a person's socioeconomic status might make them more susceptible to certain sins. So the wealthy are more likely to be self-indulgent or self-absorbed, for example, but we also know that sin knows no borders, no bounds, so the poor can sin in the same ways. Regardless, it could be that the poor were less likely to testify in court, maybe out of fear. They might have been more likely to come into contact with dead animals or uncleanness, yet they are not excused. All of God's people are required to make the sin offering, and the Lord graciously made provision for all, even the poorest of the poor, who could obtain, they could obtain some flour by gleaning it from the edges of the fields they were provided for. The Lord made provision for all of this. And just a note, I I do want to just point out one thing at the end of verse 11. says, and he, uh, a tenth of an ephah of fine flour for a sin offering. He shall put no oil on it, shall put no frankincense on it, for it is a sin offering. No oil or frankincense was added to that offering because those ingredients, they went with the festive and, and joyful offerings. They smelled really good. But this offering dealt with sin and guilt. Here's where I want to end this morning. Don't miss the promise of, of forgiveness here. Don't miss through this the promise of, the, of an atonement for sin. Thus the priest shall make an atonement for him for the sin which he has committed in any one of these things and he shall be forgiven. He shall be forgiven. Turn over to Psalm 32. I'm just going to read this and then we're going to come to the table to proclaim the death of Christ as we await his return. Psalm 32 says this. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away, though my, uh, through my groaning all day long. For all day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. 
Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it would not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Pray with me. Father, as we come to the table, as we consider all of these things, we know that we have sinned. We sometimes don't want to admit it. We often don't, especially to others, but we know. We know that we have sinned in many ways. We have turned our back on you. We have been prideful. We are unrighteous, Lord. But Father, today as we come to you, we confess. We confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And we confess that we are great sinners in need of a great Savior. And so, Father, we pray that you would remind us that for those who are in Christ, for those who are His, for those for whom Christ died, who have called upon Him in spirit and in truth, for those who have said, I believe that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so we come to the table, Lord, knowing that it is because of Christ's work on the cross that we are made clean. It is because of his body crucified for me, for my sin. It is because of his blood shed for me, for my sin, that our garments, that my garments are made white as snow, that our sin is completely washed away. And so, Lord, if there are any here who do not know you, I pray that they would repent and believe. Run to Christ for salvation and for rest. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.